Hey readers, book reviewers, podcasters, librarians, booksellers, and lovers of great scary stories. Buzz Book Expo 2020 is just around the corner. Buzz Book Expo is a live streaming event in which publishers will be announcing all the great new horror fiction releases they have to offer this coming year. There will be interviews, Q&As, presentations, book cover reveals, and more from all your favorite horror publishers all for free. Yes, free. Spend two days immersed in exciting book talk from publishers and authors alike. The event will take place from August 22nd to the 23rd. All information, including links to the expo, can be found at marysanji.wordpress.com slash buzzbookexpo2020. We hope to see you there. Everybody, welcome to Deadhead Space. I am Brennan LaFaro. I'm joined by my co-host Patrick R. McDonough. Hello. And uh, tonight we are going to be talking with a pillar of the horror community, reviewer, and all-around gentleman, uh, Mr. Scott Kemper. Hello, Scott. What's up, guys? Massachusetts in the house. What got you into horror? Serious answer. What got me into horror was when I was like a kid. Maybe I was four or five. I forget what age. But my dad had me watch the original Halloween movie. And that fucked me up, like, pretty good. If I could say fuck. <laughs> you can curse as much as you fucking want. All right. You could say it twice. <laughs> so that, that fucked me up good when I was a kid. And I've always kind of been searching for the next rush after that. Which got me into, like, video games. And, like, Resident Evil and Silent Hill were big pillars of my childhood. Mm. And reading Goosebumps was also a big thing when I was a kid as well. Yeah, same here. So, that, so where okay. do we go from uh, Goosebumps as far as reading goes anyway? Uh, from Goosebumps, I went into, funnily enough, fantasy. <laughs> and I was a big Harry Potter nerd when I was like middle school. And then when I was in high school, I read The Rising by Brian Keene. And that brought me back into horror. That's interesting. And I know that uh, in the horror community, anyways, there's a big fan base for him. And that's actually the book that got a lot of people into him, which I feel a lot of the loop because I started becoming a fan of him as a podcaster. Uh, Brennan and I will be reading Ghoul for one of our uh, horror classics. So that'll be my first time reading him. And I'm a full grown man. So I feel, I feel way behind with a bunch of people in this community. Well, I mean,. When I was in high school, geez, I'm fucking old. It was like 2002 was my first year of high school and zombies were becoming like the next big thing. And me as a high school kid, I was like, oh, there's a zombie book. And that's how I got into Brian Keene, which pulled me back into horror and the whole leisure paperbacks situation that was going on. Like I had this short story collection. I forget the name of it. It opened up with a Joyce Carol Oates short story. It was a leisure paperback. Mm. And it had a Richard Lehman story. 
that was like one of the most fucked up things I read. And I was like, I think I'm not old enough to really read this story yet. <laughs> uh, you know what? Around that time, because I got I got into horror. What really bit me was the films, slasher films from the 80s, which turned into during that era of zo- reemergence of zombie films was like 2004. I think it was Dawn of the Dead, the remake. Eventually, 28 Days Later, Shaun of the Dead. I can't remember the years for any of those, but I just remember I, I was probably in high school. And, yeah, it just seemed like they blew up out of nowhere. But I think Brian was kind of one of the main people that brought it back. I'd say he was definitely, like, part of the wave. For sure. Like, his book came out at the same time that, like, his book came out, then the Dawn of the Dead remake came out. Shaun of the Dead also came out around that time as well. 28 Days Later came out around that time. So just a whirlwind of like zombie apocalypse. You and know, he that, was fortunate enough to ride that wave. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's going to feel pretty good, I would think. And you know what? I kind of would be more interested to see how that would play out in reality than what we're dealing with right now, man. Honestly, I'm pretty sure it would feel play out exactly the same. States <laughs> states make stay-at-home orders. People are like, fuck you, you're infringing on my freedom. The next thing you know, they're fucking zombies. Like, hmm. I'm pretty sure it all ties together. <laughs> so we'll get back to horror in one second. Uh, I don't think Brendan knows this, but you're, you're a bassist, and he's a bassist. And I just wanted to see how you got into that. How What, what brought you into music? I've always been into music. Like... I'll, I'll try to make this as short as I can. <laughs> um, when I was a kid, like very young, I was super into the Beatles, as most children are. My dad had Beatles cassettes, and I listened to Beatles cassette tapes every night. And then I was really good friends with my neighbor, and his brother had uh, two cassettes that I stole, <laughs> which was Dookie from Green Day yeah. and the self-titled Offspring album. That's a good one, too. And, um, was it the self-titled one? The, the, it was the one with, um, their big 90s song on it. I forget the name right now. But I stole both those, like, cassette tapes. And that was kind of, like, foundational music for me. Which then came the, uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater soundtrack. <laughs> and I fell pretty hard into ska. But I didn't know what ska was. I just knew I liked the sound of that Goldfinger Superman song in the first Tony Hawk's Pro Skater game. And which led me to like really enjoy like the rhythm aspect of music. And when I was in high school, I picked up a Rancid album. It was I picked up a Rancid album and a 311 album. Mm. And when I heard the bass parts for both those albums, I was like, I need a bass ASAP. <laughs> I want to do this. <laughs> and if you don't mind telling us a little bit, because we've talked about it, but I, I think that'd be something that other people will find interesting about your past and, and music and playing in bands and basically other people that you've come across through that. Well, I mean, every band I was in never really did much, which is like, if you, if you look up online, you're not going to find me in anything, but pretty much what it was, was I was in a few bands and my main band I was in was a really shitty ska punk band <laughs> called the Kickflips, and we fucking sucked. And 
Um, but we shared a practice space down in Taunton. There was like a warehouse in Taunton that had a bunch of band practice spaces. And through that practice space, I met like people from other bands. So when it became to like the Boston local scene, it was like if a band, if a local band needed a fill in bassist, cause I knew all the guys, they would just give me a text. And if I could make it, I'd help fill in for them. <laughs> so just like mostly local bands that like I'd help out every once in a while. Was that in the where? Uh, for those that don't know, Taunton, the where is a section that's pretty sketchy. It was in the where. I know what you're talking about. That bill, God. <laughs> it's, thought... it's called it's called Bandstand Live. I think it was called. Yes. Yep. I'm I'm very familiar with that city. Um, <laughs> I feel like even driving by there, I question if I would come out alive or stabbed or something. <laughs> the best was like, what was it? I had a room rented, and I just started a new band. We had no name. It was me and my buddy Anthony on drums. And I had a guy coming in that we both knew from high school playing guitar and vocals. We were doing like a rancid op ivy type thing. First band practice, me and the drummer show up and the guitarist is a no show. And we're like, what the hell? And we found out later he got arrested for selling drugs. So first <laughs> band practice, the band broke up. <laughs> you could have been something. <laughs> could have. Well, so do you listen to music while you... I know you write too. Do do you listen to music? Do you incorporate that in your reading? Is it part of your daily life? I listen to music a lot during the day, but when I write, I kind of stick to instrumentals or movie soundtracks. Oh, that's pretty common. I kind of do the same thing. I gotta be in the mood to listen to something with vocals in it. Like I'll listen to various metal bands, <clears throat> but yeah, soundtracks. Uh, instrumental tracks it's usually what i listen to when i read i'll get distracted too much if there's vocals especially if i know what the words of the song are <laughs> so i tend to go like recently i've been using the uh fill of glass Candyman soundtrack that's yeah. been that's been a mainstay and the soundtrack for it chapter one i also find a really good writing music I haven't listened to either one of those. I like the video from the video game The Last of Us. That's a great one that I I really enjoy and go back to every now and then. Ooh, that's a really good soundtrack. Yeah, and um, then there's like different ambient tracks to like Bioshock. That's just uh, just enough noise where it, it just it just puts you in a place where you can go to town and write. Or the Nine Inch Nails Dark Wave albums are also really good writing music. What's that? Uh, Nine Inch Nails. This thing is called oh, Nine Ghosts Inch Nails. One through yeah, four. Yeah. I you and then they else. just released a new like ghost sessions. Yes. And it's just like instrumental dark wave. Yeah. No, I apologize. I thought you said something else. I, I downloaded those two, which by the way, everybody, they are free on the Nine Inch Nails website. And they are fantastic. Yeah, I've listened to both of those probably at least six t- times. Have Brennan? Do you like Nine Inch Nails at all? I honestly have not heard anything new by them since probably like 2005. <laughs> Holy shit. So, NIN.com, their, their latest two free instrumental tra- uh, albums, the full albums, they're awesome. They're great to listen to, just in general, or while you're reading or writing. Speaking of Nanish Nails, real quick, the uh, Watchmen soundtrack that Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did. 
was also fucking fantastic. Oh yeah, those two guys. They put out so much shit. They didn't they do a soundtrack for NASA when they went to where they were recording on I want to say Jupiter. I could be wrong. I don't even know half the stuff they do anymore. They just do everything. <laughs> <laughs> I I always compare Trent Reznor to like a a modern day Mozart. I could see that. I mean, he's just a fucking genius. I'd like to find out a little bit about I know you went to Asia uh for a little while. You got a huge passion for Asia, Asian cinema. I don't hear that too often. Tell us a little bit about that. I like how you word that. I have a strong passion for Asian cinema. <laughs> it does have implications. It has it has some implications that I'm not <laughs> oh. going to deny. Oh, I didn't even think but... of that. <laughs> hey, let's um, let's talk about naughty stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when it comes to like Asian cinema, it started with the remake of the ring but when like the american version of the ring came out it scared the shit out of me and i didn't know it was a japanese remake and then i saw the grudge which also scared the shit out of me (laughs) and i had no idea the grudge was also a japanese remake Mm. and then when i graduated high school this ties back into like my fondness for horror and i was a complete like pussy when it came to horror movies like for the longest time where mm. before I'd watch a horror movie, I do all this internet research, like how violent is it? What happens in this movie to like prepare myself for like what I was going to see on the screen. Jeez. And in many ways that made it worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it do this internet research. I came across like, Oh, the grudge is a remake of a Japanese movie. The rings a remake of a Japanese movie. And I was a big anime nerd when I was in high school. So I was like, I know anime. I'm, I'm interested in seeing an actual like Japanese like cinematic movie because I hadn't seen foreign movies before. So I rented the original Japanese The Ring, Ringu. Loved it. Rented Juon. Loved it. And this led me down a rabbit hole of just like the early 2000s Japanese horror like train, which led me to like Suicide Club, which... I still think is one of the most underrated horror movies to this day. What's that and, about? Uh, Suicide Club is pretty much it opens up with a bunch of Japanese high school girls walking down to the subway, and they're all singing this like happy song. And as a train pulls into the subway, all these Japanese schoolgirls jump in front of the train and commit suicide. What the fuck? <laughs> And it ends up having, like, this plague of, like, teenage suicides in Japan. And there's, like, this connection behind these suicides that these two police detectives are trying to figure out, like, why all these teenagers are killing themselves. Yeah. Um, it wow. is it is a very fucked up movie. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Um, it doesn't end like The Happening, does it? <laughs> no, it does not end like The Happening. There is no, okay. there is no Mother Nature's making humans <laughs> kill themselves. That bullshit. Well, I- to avoid spoilers, you were vague, so I mean, <laughs> it was close. <laughs> it was close, but I mean, if you if you haven't seen the happening by now, like you're not going to ever see the happening anyway. That's probably for the best. <laughs> and then I saw a uh, Pulse, which to this day Pulse is probably my favorite Japanese horror movie. Which there is a shitty American remake of Pulse. Don't watch that. 
Tell us about the, tell us about the original. What, uh, the original and the American remake have a similar plot, but the American remake isn't as effective. Uh, the original is about like suicide, just like the Suicide Club is, and it's pretty much like the dead begin communicating to the living via email. So people who are using the internet, people using the computers, end up coming in contact with the dead, and getting in contact with the dead like via the internet leads people to feel heavy despair that leads them to committing suicide. I'm sensing a theme here with you. Yes, there, I have a very morbid theme. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the movie's pretty much like, as the movie continues, this like dead email pandemic is getting worse and worse. And the main characters are trying to like avoid using the internet and trying to figure out what's going on. And if they can stop it. Yeah, good luck not using the internet. It was a bit easier in 2003 than it is now. Oh, <laughs> that's what I, I was just thinking. Yeah, uh, yeah, I yeah. forgot a year. That was even it. the yeah. remake. Um, I think the remake was maybe 06 or 07. So not even even then we don't have you know iPhones running around rampant. Yeah. So they they, they were made pre smartphone days. Yeah, I just remember back in like 2006, seven, I was on MySpace and you had to code your profile and uh, didn't really text anyone because I didn't have a phone like that. And yeah, that, I just wasn't it aimed. Chat rooms were still kind of big back then, too. Yep, chat rooms are still a thing. AOL <laughs> instant messenger aim. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a thing. Uh, yeah, that that was a weird time because, uh, like, parents didn't really know how to properly, you know, po- if you, I don't know, for lack of a better word, police their children due to how new it was. Parents still don't know how to police their children on the internet, dude. <laughs> Brennan, is this true? Your kid, your boys are still too young, aren't they? Yeah, they're they're definitely on the. Uh close side to too young i will tell you we um we we put uh facebook messenger has a kids version where you can you know verify all their friends all their messages basically any they can't do much on it and uh anything they do comes through my phone but they are obnoxious with it uh you know to your point about uh you know not being able to police them you'll you'll you know, tell them they have to ask permission to message somebody. And five minutes later, they have sent 37 pictures of themselves to every relative in your uh, Facebook list. (laughs) There's a, uh, there's an app you should look into on your phone that is pretty much like a timeout app, but it's for the phone. And if you enable it, it has to be installed on their phone as well. If you enable it, it disables them from using certain apps for a specific yep. amount of time. Huh. I'll I forget the name that. of it right now, though. I was just <laughs> thinking that I would, you know, it, it, I would probably end up using the, you know, turn off the uh, tablet feature more, uh, more, more to basically just um, mess with them rather than to punish <laughs> them. Yes. Oh, your your internet's a, oh, let me oh, see, it's fixed. It's fixed now. <laughs> if I if I had kids, I'd, that that would be the the road I'd take. You know. Along those lines, my wife and I were watching TV earlier, and I just see this commercial, and I forget the the, the brand doesn't matter, but it was this um, it was kind of like Alexa, where 
they were it was going from shot to shot of different people asking to do this or that and it was a faucet in the last shot and it just filled up to a certain amount to fill this cup and i'm just thinking in my head i'm going that's a bad idea to make everything smart because you know whoever's behind that that has internet access somehow someone's behind it and someone will be tracking something you do and all that data is being collected eventually that means you have pretty much no freedom because they are very aware of all your patterns that's scary yeah no it's terrifying because that's something that could be not only like in your home but it could be with very likely within our lifetime that there's going to be a time when there's going to be chips that are installed for the internet like there was this woman that installed a i heard a, she installed a uh, a car starter for her uh tesla <laughs> in her <laughs> i don't know i i I think that all these sci-fi stories and whatnot, Black Mirror comes to mind the most. Like those are just like foretelling of the future with a lot of them. I mean, that's always been an element of sci-fi, but I've never felt the purpose of sci-fi was to predict the future. If you even if you go back to like Fahrenheit 451, that's such a you, good. That's such a good book. Oh, it's it's a great book. Um, but the, in that book, the characters like kind of like wireless headphones are, are in that book. And like, there's aspects of technology in that book that were created many, many decades later. That's interesting. And then there's a Edgar Allan Poe's prose poem, Eureka, where he describes, it's like when he's, uh, I think it was published when he was either on his deathbed or posh. Posthum- I can never fucking say that word. Posthumously? Yeah. And it's basically describing the universe in a way where back then the scientists were just like, what the fuck is he talking about? But turns out the more we learn, wait, he, he is very close to what the truth is. Just not around yeah. to appreciate it. Yeah. Exactly. Just another story that comes to mind. Have you guys ever – I'm not a huge Mark Twain fan. I just never got into his stories. But have you guys ever heard about his collection that his daughter had published after he died where it's called Letters to Earth? Yeah, I've read that. Have you read that, Brennan? No, I've never heard of it. So it's great. Uh, a friend of mine randomly mentioned it to me. Um, I think it's worth picking up because it's about uh, the – it's about Satan writing back up to, I think it's St. Michael, basically saying how God is pretty much an asshole because he sees how these people are treated. And it's just, it's an interesting perspective. Um, and you got to figure back in like, what was it, the mid 1800s? I think that's when he was around. Because he so was. Late 1800s. Uh, yeah, he was he was publishing in like the late 1800s to early 1900s. Okay, that makes sense. So when he passed away, it was still really taboo to to talk about this stuff. Um, so his daughter was really hesitant to publish it, I believe. But it's it's just really fascinating to to read that, especially considering the time it was written in. Well, there's um, what is it with Mark Twain? I'm a big Mark Twain fan, by the way. That's a fun fact about me. Good I'm, I really enjoy like. 1800s American literature. <laughs> um, but a fun fact about Mark Twain is they released his autobiography, I think, in 2010. And it was like 
part of his thing when he died was like he didn't want his autobiography and his diaries released until a specific date. And that's the year that he chose. <laughs> that's weird. So when when they, when they came out, like it was a bunch of stuff that like people didn't know about Mark Twain, who's actually his real name is Samuel Clements, by the way. I knew um, that. And one of the first things he says in this is that he's an atheist, which mm. like at that time would have been really controversial. Yeah. <laughs> and another thing is he was a very like politically active person as well for his time period and a lot of his like politics were like nowadays we'd be like many people i guess you could say he's like a social justice warrior (laughs) but his politics for the time were very very left-leaning a lot more than like the average left-leaning person is there one specific thing that you can think of where he was strongly for that is maybe an interesting fact that we might not know uh, he was strongly opposed to nationalism and imperialism. That's not a bad thing. <laughs> when when America first expanded into the Philippines, uh, he was kind of for American expansion because he believed that like America would be building up these countries because that's kind of how imperialism was sold. And then there was an incident where the American military executed 300 Muslim civilians who were unarmed many of them children and when that happened mark twain wrote a newspaper article saying how the american military are a bunch of butchers and like they're how they're doing all these horrible acts overseas and we shouldn't be supporting this type of thing uh yeah that's that's fucking crazy i did not and know like, that yeah it's a little like a lot, he did a lot of stuff that many people don't realize and they just look at Mark Twins like, oh, he's the guy who wrote Huck Finn. <laughs> <laughs> but he did so much more. Yeah, and he and, was friends with uh, Nikola Tesla, too, which is pretty yes. damn cool. Another thing he did, too, is when um, slavery ended and African-Americans in the South were free people, mm-hmm. he actually paid out of his pocket to send a handful of them to college and educate them. I didn't know that. That's pretty awesome. So and a then, couple, couple other fun facts with Mark Twain. <laughs> yeah, and I know he had two daughters that died fairly youngish, like around our age, I, I believe. I believe so. Because uh, I don't think there's any living relative of him. No, there's there's no living relative of Mark Twain. Hmm. Let's get back to you with horror, and I do have a question uh, about your writing. So for those that don't know, tell us about your writing because I don't think you have anything published. Am I am I correct? I, I have nothing published, but I have okay. a few short stories I'm shopping around. Nice. Right now I'm sitting on like 20 short stories that I'm <laughs> editing and trying to shop around. My philosophy for publishing my short stories is I want to be like HPV where once I'm out there, I'm fucking out there. And you're not going to escape it. That's quite the um, analogy. Oh, I, I'm full of them. Or um, simile, I'm not really sure. <laughs> both. I did say like, so it would be a simile. That's true, that's what I heard, that's what made me think of it. <laughs> but my idea behind my fiction is, this kind of goes back to like, those two Japanese movies I mentioned about suicide, where like my fiction isn't about suicide, but my fiction is very nihilistic and not 
good things happen in those stories. <laughs> They're very dark. I'm kind of my fiction's inspired by a mixture of Thomas Ligotti, Matthew Bartlett, a splash of Brian Keane, and a sprinkle of Mary San Giovanni, with a heavy dose of cryptids, as well as back to my influence from those weird Japanese movies that you still watch. <laughs> I, I like those units. A sprinkle and a dash. Sprinkle and a dash. A pinch. That's um, how you make a jambalaya. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Which is, I, I love jambalaya. So, Scott, you know about cryptids. All right. Uh, Brennan, Brennan didn't know about this, and I didn't know about this for the longest time, and I lived there. Have you heard about the Bridgewater Triangle? I've been in the Bridgewater Triangle. I mean, you, you lived in it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I've been to the actual area that it's, like, it's supposed to be in. It covers... Like the, the wooded area that it covers? Oh, it covers, two, it covers 200 square miles. Yeah, it's East, nuts. Yeah, East Bridgewater is definitely part of that. It is. Yeah, oh, you gave away my childhood location. Grew up in East Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Oh, you didn't live there. The Vikings. I'm sorry. Yeah, you don't live there anymore, so I thought it was okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't live there anymore. I moved a long time ago. Um, but home, home of the Vikings. Nothing special ever came from that town. You want to hear a funny story about that town? Sure. So, real quick, my wife and I, uh, our first date, I took her to um, this bowling alley in East Bridgewater, and oh, the Kevin bowling alley. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so basically, uh, it's not a place to impress a woman. Uh, don't know why she like was okay with going on a second date with me, but the bowling balls were big and like small enough to fit in the palm of her hand. There was candle pins and guardrails. It was basically created for children and families. I mean, candle pin bowling isn't just for children. There, there's I, a specific skill to candle pin bowling. Okay. Well. It looked like that to me. That that's my story. <laughs> There's no great ending. I don't know why I brought it up. I just thought it was Viking, kind of funny. Viking Recreation Center. I know. I know that place well. Yeah. Well, I didn't, it didn't help that the only people in that bowling alley during that particular night were, in fact, a bunch of children. I mean, in East Bridgewater. There's nothing really else to do. Did you ever experience anything strange or abnormal? Um. The only time I experienced something strange wasn't even that strange, but it was like when I walked into this like wooded area that's part of the triangle, just like doing my exploration. Yeah. Once I crossed a a specific line, it was raining, but it wasn't raining outside that line. It was like one spot where it was raining, and like that was it. (laughs) That's very. That 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 that's I I got nothing else. I just thought that was kind of weird. But nothing nothing spooky ever happened to me. I've been trying to find spooky things and do spooky things, and I'm kind of a skeptic when it comes to that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I lived there for 26 years, and and it's not like me and my friends didn't go around the spots. Like, there's this one spot, I forget the town, on a highway where there's supposed to be a ghost with a red, thick red beard. And no matter how fast you're driving, he can, he can keep up with you, and eventually you'll see him in your rear rear seat uh that never happened to me and my friends anyways uh there's a schoolhouse that's supposed to be full of ghosts one of those old one-room schoolhouses and then there was this other 
outside of a heavily wooded area where there was supposed to supposedly have been um, Native Americans that got like executed on this particular large boulder. My friends and I went there during Halloween night. Like it was pitch dark and I don't know. It it felt weird, but nothing. We never saw anything. I never saw anything either. And I, I, I did. I walked around those woods a lot. I went exploring a lot. There was supposedly a dorm at Bridgewater State University that's haunted, but, like, nothing ever happened. <laughs> I went there a lot, too, man. I had friends that went there. No, nothing. Just normal college shit. And uh, <laughs> ha- have you ever looked into the guy that coined that term, uh, Lauren Coleman, the cryptozoologist? I have not. Uh, yeah, he's an interesting guy. He's in that documentary on the Bridgewater Triangle. Uh, it's interesting. It's worth a watch. It's on Prime. Is it? Yeah, it is. I know that FX is going to be making a series based off of it, too. I scrolled by it the other day when I went to watch a movie, like, last night. I was like, maybe I'll watch this, but not tonight. (laughs) So, um, is there anything else that you want to talk about pertaining to your writing? I would say, going back to my writing, one thing to expect from it, everything I write is definitely nihilistic and... There's no happiness in my stories at all. Um, at any point. At any point. Oh man. They could they like... could start off happy, but like they're not gonna end happy. Because I'll try to write a happy story. Yeah. But like I I it'll just end up being sad anyway. I mean that's um, expected with horror, isn't it? <laughs> I've been well even before I started writing horror, that's just kinda how my stories went. Like when I first started writing, I was really into sci fi. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to write science fiction. And I'm terrible at writing science fiction. Everything I wrote just came up really bad. I have a trunk novel that's like a cyberpunk shit novel that's never going to see the light of day. <laughs> and I cannibalize bits and pieces of it sometimes. And like I always – when I was writing sci-fi, everything I wrote was really like pessimistic and bleak. But nothing I wrote like felt authentic or natural. So it just felt like I was imitating other authors, which is why I just trunk the whole thing because it felt like it wasn't me. How long did you, how many, what's the workout? How far did you get along? 70,000. Oh, that's pretty much a whole novel. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I went into, there was a book I read in college that I highly recommend checking out. It's actually, he's written three books and they're all really good. And the author's name is Frank Bill. And his first novel is called Donnybrook. And he has a short story collection called Crimes in Southern Indiana. And then he has a sequel to Donnybrook called The Savage. And all his books are like, if you want, if if I go revisit like my old college writing, I was trying to imitate this like white trash, noir, really visceral, violent, fucked up shit that like he was writing. (laughs) And it's not like he's not writing horror, but the stuff he writes is like really bleak and fucked up. Like Donnybrook is about this guy named Jarhead. Everyone calls him Jarhead. And he is in a lot of debt and his wife is a meth addict and he's running out of money fast and he needs to get money for his family. And in his town, in this county, there's a thing called the Donnybrook, which is like a weekend of fighting meth and sex. And the person who wins 
who wins like the Donnybrook, the big fight, wins the fortune that everybody has to spend to enter. Like they get the whole pool. And he can take a hit really good. So he thinks he can win this Donnybrook. So he robs a gun store <laughs> for $1,000, just $1,000 for his entry fee, promises he'll pay the guy back when he wins. And the book follows him going to this fight. Then it follows a drug dealer named Chainsaw Angus and his sister, who are also going to the Donnybrook, leaving dead bodies in their wake. And someone else who's trying to catch up with Chainsaw Angus and stop him. And it is white trash at its finest. And it is glorious. (laughs) Sounds pretty fucked up. And that was like one of my big influences when I was in college and trying to write like then. And I have a book. It's not a book. It's like a collection of short stories that are interconnected that were inspired by that novel. And it's about this kid who like joins a gang and just like how this gang life and what he has done to like enter this gang and what he does just breaks him as a person. And each story visits him at a different time in his life. And that was like one of my early writing projects that I've also trunked because I lost half of it. Where'd you Um, lose it? Or how'd you lose it? I moved to China and it was accidentally deleted off the cloud. That's that's really how I lost it. That's okay. And, I mean, there's more. It was it was saved on the cloud, and I couldn't get access to the cloud in China. So I asked someone over here to email it to me, and I gave them my access to the cloud, and they accidentally did it. That's oh no. So I I lost that, and then when I was in China was when I got in was when I kind of got back into horror, where I read um, a head full of ghosts by Paul Tremblay, and that was the book that like got me back into horror fiction because I had fallen out of horror fiction for a little bit. And uh, once I read a head full of ghosts, I was like back in it and I was getting back into horror fiction. I discovered indie horror and I discovered all these great indie authors. And I discovered that Brian Keene never stopped writing because when leisure books went under, I stopped seeing Brian Keene books. So I thought maybe he moved on. So I rediscovered Brian Keene and I rediscovered like the other leisure authors as well as the indie scene, and that transitioned my writing over to more of a horror focus. A few questions. So <laughs> how did you discover Paul Tremblay over in China? Is it is he big over there, or at least where you were? No, not at all. Um, <laughs> I discovered Paul Tremblay back when he was writing, when he put out A Little Sleep, his first novel. That was um, a crime novel, right? It's, it's a crime novel about a detective who suffers from narcolepsy. Mm. It's a good book. I, I like that one a lot. But I've the known. Big Little? I've known, uh, I think The Big Little is the second one. The first one's okay. called like, The Little Sleep. I gotcha. And then I forget what the second one's called. Um, but I've known, I knew Paul since like those books. And when I was leaving for China, I had just read Bird Box by Josh Mallerman. And I finished Bird Box like a few months before I left for China. And then when I was rounding up for my second year to go to China, on like the internet blog sphere, I kept on hearing about a head full of ghosts being this like fantastic horror novel and being this scary horror novel. So I picked it up uh, before I left for my second year in China. And I devoured the whole thing in like a single sitting. <laughs> so why were you going to China in the first place? Um, I got a job teaching English to, well, teaching technically teaching AP literature to Chinese high schoolers at an international school. 
So I was teaching like AP literature and composition. That reminds me of Parasite, the movie Parasite. That's a really good movie. Yeah, um, I, re- I remember you talking about it on your uh, podcast. I love Parasite. But no, it's like, well, Parasite, they're, they're tutoring the, the girl. But I had like a whole, I was in working at Nanjing Number One High School. Is that and, the name of the school? Yep. Nanjing Ijong. But it's and, called, it's, is, is number one in the name of the school. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Ijong is like one uh, middle. Oh. So it's like Nanjing Number One Middle School. But in China, middle school is high school because they go primary school, then middle school, then college. But when – because what happens is this, they name, they name schools similar here, like in New York, which it's just the number of the school when it was built. So this was the first school built in the city. So gotcha. that's number one. Now, can you speak the language well? Uh, a little bit. I speak what's called survival Chinese <laughs> where I can order – I can take a taxi. I can haggle. I can give and understand directions, and I can buy beer. Can you go to see Chinese uh, cinema, if you know what I'm saying? A little bit. All right, so moving on. That joke did not land. <laughs> <laughs> in in um, Pedro's defense, the, uh, his, his call cut out, so I only caught the Chinese cinema part of his joke. Oh, no, that's fine. That's fine. You're, you're all set. <laughs> he was, uh, again, intimating that you watch... Uh, too much porn, which takes us full circle back to the beginning. <laughs> uh, I mean, don't we all, though? <laughs> so let's delete the whole episode. And since we're at the beginning again, hi, this is your co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Oh, fuck, I messed up the name, didn't I? Yeah. And it's not <laughs> your name, off the rails. So. He is, he is. Well, I let's will get... say one thing about uh, China. Yes. Is I never understood, like, so when I was in China... It, the nowadays they release American movies pretty often over there, but they don't release horror movies. But I can tell you two funny horror movie experiences I had over there. Do it. Uh, the first was the unrelated. I never realized how bad movie censorship was over there until I saw Kingsman. And have you guys seen Kingsman? Yes. No, I know it's about though. So like, you know, the big church shootout scene in the movie. That's like the big, like, Oh shit moment. Is is that all censored? It's not even in the movie. Oh, dear God. Why would you see that movie then? <laughs> I had no idea until, like, it happened. It builds up to, like, everything going crazy, and then it cuts to him leaving the church all bloody. What the fuck? I mean, I suppose if you didn't know it was there, that makes sense, but, oh, you're missing out. Oh, and I watched it again, and I saw the whole scene. I was like, oh, this is Oh, uh, I meant in, in, in general, anybody who sits through that cut is missing out. Oh, yeah, no, totally. So one time when I was in China, they will pick the weirdest American movies to release over there sometimes. So you guys are the movie that came out a couple years ago, Life with Ryan Reynolds. Yep. <laughs> that got released in China. <laughs> Why? <laughs> it's I liked it, to be honest with you. But I went and saw it in theaters and it's it was advertised as like a sci-fi space movie. And I knew going in, it was kind of like a space horror movie and these parents brought like their little like eight-year-old kid to see the movie with them and like during all the scary bits the kid was freaking the fuck out (laughs) and it was the funniest thing oh my god (laughs) (laughs) and then i saw a quiet place in china which oh great 
which was actually kind of cool because so when you're watching like an American movie in China or a foreign, I guess foreign movie in China, um, they'll give Chinese subtitles. Sometimes they'll give English subtitles below the Chinese subtitles, but there's always Chinese subtitles. Wait, but it's during, in it's in English and it's given English subtitles. It'll have big Chinese subtitles and little English translations below sometimes. But they're speaking in English, right? Yes. I'm confused. It makes no sense. Don't don't <laughs> don't go there. Um, sometimes even in in Chinese movies, they also do the same thing, where okay. you'll have the Chinese subtitles because there's many regional dialects, mm. so they'll have the subtitles for it to make sense for the common moviegoer. And then right. for the bigger releases, because there's a big international population there, they'll also have English subtitles so the international population can also follow. Because, you know, everybody speaks English. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I saw A Quiet Place, which is interesting because in that movie, they communicate through like sign language. And all the sign language was just the Chinese subtitle translation. Hmm. So like me watching it, I had to like figure out what they're saying through like context clues did they not use american sign language i don't know american sign language i don't either i i know a few letters i don't I know, know i know a couple uh, signs yeah i know i know how to <laughs> so i had to figure out what was going on through context and in my opinion it actually made the movie more tense so i highly recommend watching that movie in those subtitles if you've never seen it before I actually haven't. I was planning on there was this double feature for a Quiet Place and a Quiet Place Two at my local theater, and I was pretty psyched. I was really think I, I was pretty much going to go to that. And then the coronavirus came, and it was like not that. I mean, that's the smallest thing in the world to complain about. But uh, kind of came in, steamrolled everyone. They're like, hey, here we go. Let's fuck shit up, dude. I'm living in Boston while this shit's going down. So yeah, and guess where it started. Hmm. Boston started in China. Yeah, I know. It started in Wuhan, which I've actually been to Wuhan before. You get what I'm saying, Brandon? It's a little suspicious. <laughs> He's blaming you for a virus outbreak. <laughs> I know he is. <laughs> I'm not prick. Why, why is it that I'm translating for you tonight? This is this is ridiculous. I understand the English speech to English subtitles now. <laughs> I'm just um, wondering if the uh, so, so Scott does it does it give like the Chinese subtitles is the translation of what's going on in English is the English subtitles are the English subtitles a translation of the Chinese and do you get kind of this like telephone game effect sometimes yes sometimes they're actually good subtitles <laughs> sometimes sometimes the Chinese subtitles are really bad I forget I forget the translation but when I saw the second Avengers movie in China. Mm-hmm. The translation they had for the Chinese subtitles was awful. I was reading some of it and I was laughing at like how the subtitles translated some of the phrases. I forget now though, but I remember it being really bad. My uh, my dad used to travel to China for uh, for work, and I think he even lived there for uh, like a six month period. And whenever he would come home, he would come home with a briefcase full of like pi- pirated Chinese DVDs. <laughs> uh, he said yes. you could buy them on the street corner for like you know. 25 cents a pop and they always had the most hilarious subtitles uh the one i'll never forget we were watching uh ratatouille with my uh, wife's niece and nephew and they just you know the the subtitles transitioned from the correct subtitles to fuck this and you know shit on that and it was <laughs> it was not accurate i'll say <laughs> 
I love bad Chinese subtitles. Can um, you guys imagine if that someone was paid to purposely just fucking destroy a Pixar f- subtitle? Well, there's actually a Japanese anime that was really badly like produced in English. I think it's called Ghost Adventures or something, or Ghost Hunters, or Ghost something. It's notorious for like a really bad translation, and the voice actors literally are doing improv comedy instead <laughs> of like reading the translated script. And it's so bad, but it makes it really funny because none of it just makes any sense. I guess uh, we got to check that one out. Hey, so I think we should definitely focus on something that I don't want to forget about. Uh, you as a reviewer and how that started and then how that led to staring into the abyss. So we're going we're going back all the way around then. All right. Yeah, I, I mean, so. I should have <laughs> me and Brendan should have started this off probably. But, you know, who gives a fuck shit ass? We can swear here. We're not making any logical choices. That's the so show, man. Does that mean so, that if I do the intro, I get blamed for anything that goes wrong? Is that how it works? <laughs> yes. The host, the host is always at fault. I did not read the fine print. <laughs> um, Wait, you did the intro? Wow. I, are we being serious right now? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's exactly how you would say no if you meant yes. <laughs> I mean, yes. So, with my reviews, this goes back to, like, me... As just my personality, I love recommending shit to people. I'm very passionate about what I like, and I like to share that passion with other people. So that led to me reviewing books. Because before, I'd just be like going to my friends and annoying my friends, you got to read this fucking book. It's fucking awesome. Check this book out. And like, you know what? It's, it's annoying to my friends. <laughs> so <laughs> I decided to annoy strangers on the internet. <laughs> but the more I kind of fell into like writing reviews and indie horror, and the more I started going down this horror rabbit hole, if you will, it kind of brought me back to like why I liked horror in the first place and what got me back into horror. And there are a couple podcasts that I'm going to shout out. And one is Max Booth's Castle Rock Radio. And my original idea for a podcast was what if someone took Max Booth's castle rock radio idea and made it about brian Keane's labyrinth stories hmm. that was my original idea and then there's another podcast called the final guys which i oh, really like hunter shay yeah with hunter shay and jack campisi and jason brandt and like each one each episode is them having like a roundtable discussion about a horror movie and before they discuss a horror movie they talk about stuff that they saw or read the prior week so I liked the idea of the roundtable discussion of something, and I was like, instead of doing a Brian Keene like story every week, what if we make it a discussion about horror fiction and use it to like talk about different horror stories, different types of horror stories, and use the podcast to explore the horror genre a bit more? Okay. So I reached out to a couple of different people who I'm friendly with, and expecting everyone to say no, <laughs> um, but Michael Patrick Hicks was dumb enough to agree (laughs) and roped in his buddy Matt Brandenburg along and here we are and it's been a lot of fun like we've had some really great guests we have some really great guests planned what did Michael Patrick Hicks uh what did he say initially 
Oh, he said he it sounded like a good idea, and he'd been wanting he'd been thinking about getting into podcasting. Yeah. So this was like a good idea for him to like jump off on. Hmm. And I think what makes the podcast work is when I invite authors onto the podcast or authors asked to come on. The rule is pretty much this. You're welcome to come on the podcast, but you have to bring a story for us that you want us to discuss. And the story needs to be one that you like to revisit a lot, or a favorite story, or a story that inspired you. But it shouldn't own? be, like, one of your own stories. Ah, uh, okay. So it gives authors a chance to, like, instead of being like, so, who is Patrick McDonough? It, it's 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 don't more it, like hey don't answer that Brennan. <laughs> it's more like hey let's have a roundtable discussion and talk horror, and we'll give them a chance to like pimp their book, and we'll give them a chance to, like talk with them a little bit. But the goal of the podcast isn't an interview; it's bringing them into our discussion. Hmm. And it, it, a lot of authors seem to really enjoy like that format because I think the whole. Going to a podcast and interview gets old and tiring. Well, I think the only logical question now is to ask, who is Scott Kemper? Um, Scott Kemper is an asshole who hates everything and is very like narcissistic and has the whole world revolver on him, thinking he's more important than he actually is, and he's going to die poor, old, and alone. Hmm. Well, <laughs> not sure. How to Sounds like that. we should get along. and since you started the podcast what what doors has it opened up for you and has it made your uh uh, i guess now friendship with matt and michael your uh two co-hosts has that formed a stronger friendship i think we've all become pretty close throughout the creation of this podcast and i feel like as as a trio we get along pretty well with each other and I think we have a good on-air chemistry with each other as well. Yeah. One thing that's that's brought me, like the adventures that brought me is just reaching out. It, it made me more confident in myself. Because before, I'd be like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm going to talk to this author. Or like, oh my god, I look up to this person so much. There's no way I can be able to get them on a podcast. But now I'm just like, fuck it. <laughs> I'm just going to ask someone, and if they say no, they say no. Hmm. And it's really helped off my like confidence in asking people and getting my stuff out there. I, I totally get that. Is there a short list that you guys got that, and you don't have to name who, is there a short list that y'all got that you either are close to having them on your show or there's, you guys might be approaching them soon? Um, so we have Max Booth coming on for a second time. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's funny as hell. He really is. I can't tell when he's fucking with me. Like, I can't tell if he's, like, legit depressed. If so, I want to help him uh, because he says some fucked up stuff. Or if he's just, like, that's his sense of humor. Because if it's if it's pure comedy, that's funny. If not, I guess I'm an asshole for laughing. <laughs> <laughs> so he's coming back on for a second time. We just finished recording an episode of Michael Wee Hunt. That'll right, be right. out in the early fall. Where I'm working with John Langan right now. Nice. To work out a date with him to get him on. Overall, like I felt the horror community has always been like it's a very welcoming community. It's made me feel like more at home the more I go to these events and these conventions. Like I went to Necronomicon last year 
And that was like one of the best weekends of my life. That's one I want to go to. Uh, and I heard you talk about it on an episode. When, when do you guys record? Because you just said you're going to release one in the fall. It's not even the summertime yet. We're recording Backlog. Okay. So how's that work out? Because I'm actually trying to figure that out myself. Um, We record every week and we release an episode bi-weekly. Oh, okay. So we we just released episode 17, I believe. But we just recorded episode 30. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to avoid. No offense, but that's what I'm trying to avoid. Okay. Well, that makes sense because um, you and I were talking about something that you discussed two episodes ago. I can't remember exactly what it was. It just wasn't adding up to me. I got you. Now. Um, yeah, we, we record. It's, it's pretty off. Um, we might start moving to weekly releases depending on how big our backlog gets. So that we will kind of speed things up. But the whole idea is we're recording enough. So if we have to take a break, it's not going to hurt the release schedule. I got you. Okay, that make, that all makes sense. Um, With you guys uh, prolifically recording, is there any reason you didn't make it a weekly release? Um, we wanted to make it bi-weekly at the start because we thought we were going to be recording like an episode and releasing it the next week and then having like some time to edit and release the next one. And it ended up us having a backlog before we went live. So we've just kind of kept up that backlog as we've been releasing them. Just building the avalanche. Yes. Um, the only episode that we recorded and released, like that was current for its time, was the one for the uh, the H.H. Holmes role-playing game. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, the only uh... one that we released like on time when we recorded it. And so we recorded it three days later, we released it. Okay, yeah, that's what, Saratan Slinger. How do you yep, say that? Saratan Slinger and uh, Matthew, Matt Corley, I think it is? Yeah, Matt Corley, yep. Yep. Great people. Yeah, uh, I've talked with both of them. They're both really friendly. And it goes back to what you were saying. This is a very friendly place. Uh, for people that aren't so friendly, uh, they pretty much are filtered out or just ignored it seems like i can even speak for like john lincoln for example he is one of my favorite authors if you guys haven't read john lincoln you need to unfuck that and read john lincoln everyone loves but, um, saying that phrase <laughs> i do <laughs> everyone does um, it seems i'm a very profane person yeah um but when i first met him was at the merrimack valley halloween book festival two years ago and I was Facebook friends with him for a little bit. And so I knew he was going to be at the festival. And so I messaged him because we've talked a little bit before. And I asked him if he was selling books at the event. And he said he'd just be signing books. And I said, oh, okay. And then I said his uh, first collection, Mr. Gaunt, is out of print. So I asked him if he had any extra copies of that he'd be willing to sell me. And he said he'll take a look at what he has and he'll let me know at the event. So we get to the event and he has the limited hardback of Mr. Gaunt. Oh, shit. Which he signs and gives to me for free. What? What wow. the fuck? That's awesome, man. So like right right then was like a type of a moment where like just it shows you how friendly that John Langan is like as a guy. Yeah. And it speaks a lot to his character, but also made me feel like welcome within like this community as well. For sure. 
and he signed it by drawing a little monster in it. <laughs> I have not. It's like guys like him and Keen and you know whoever name whoever else you want. They all have something in common, and they all pay for it. It's awesome. Yeah. No, like I, every every person I've met within this community has been very friendly and very welcoming. And, like, it's made this podcast I've started, and even my fiction writing, a very rewarding endeavor. And hopefully my fiction gets published soon, because I'm eager to see how it affects people. Because I, a lot of the stuff that I'm writing kind of comes from, like, a dark place from within me, where I bleed out on the page a lot. And I'm interested to see if it affects people the way I'd like it to, or if it doesn't work as I thought it would originally. I mean, bleeding on the page, it tends to lead towards some really good art. So I'm curious to see what what you end up with, because you've told me some of the stories you're working on, and just fucking write them, man. Get them published. <laughs> I want to read them. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to. I'm, I might be self-publishing a novella over the summer. I need to save some money for a cover, but I've been sitting on a story for a while that I want to publish. Serious moment. <laughs> My mother was diagnosed with MS when I was a kid. Oh, wow. And she ultimately passed away from complications due to MS. So there's a book I'm writing that is kind of a big metaphor. It's a novella. It's kind of a big metaphor about, like, my complicated relationship with her, mm. told through the lens of the movie Pulse. <laughs> uh, you gotta you gotta throw a few more tidbits my way so I can understand and that one. It pretty much deals with the dead communicating with the living. Okay. And it follows with a son's relationship with his mother while this crazy, like, thing's happening on the outside mm. and how it goes to connect on the inside. But gotcha. the ultimate like view of the book is like a son's relationship with his mother, who when he's going through his like teenage rebellious years, she's getting sicker, sicker, and weaker, and how he reacts to that. And wow. it's very it's a very personal like story. So I want to release it, but I don't want to make money off of it. I want the money to go to charity. It's awesome. So I'm thinking, like, I'm going to self-publish it, and I'm just going to donate all the money it makes to, like, the MS Foundation. Pretty damn confident that the horror community will be very supportive of that. So I'm thinking that's the only thing I'm thinking of self-publishing, because I personally want, like, my goal ever since I started writing was to see my book in a bookstore. Mm. And I want, like, the whole going through the publishing aspect of it. I want to do all that. So, like, my goal is to traditionally publish, but I feel this story is something I need to put up myself so that way I can make sure all the funds for it go to where I want them to go. Right. That's awesome, man. It sounds like an excellent story, too. I know I'd be in for a copy if you uh, it is, if you put that together. Yeah. It is really fucked up. Just just a warning. Brennan and I devoured the girl next door and loved it. I'm, I don't think I'm speaking out of line for him when I say that. I don't think love is a really good word to use with the girl next door. <laughs> Indoors huh. is a better word to use when it comes to that book. We endured. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, we, we, when, when yeah. we talked about, when we talked about, if we throw out the word love, I mean, we, it's more about the <laughs> writing style and just the way in which that story is told more than anything <laughs> yes. else. 
It's not the not content. The content. <laughs> we don't love that. <laughs> no. That story yes. is fucking devastating. Yeah, people yeah. general mutilation. We don't love that. That's a bad thing. Yeah, you know what? I don't want anyone misconstrued in that part. Yeah, exactly. You know, at, at Deadhead Reviews, we are opposed to that, and you can quote that. <laughs> but uh, uh, I read The Girl Next Door. That's that's funny. I became friends with Michael Patrick Hicks through The Girl Next Door. How'd that happen? Um, I was in a group read, a buddy read. It was me, Mike Hicks, Sadie, a mother horror, and somebody else. And Sadie noped the fuck out like 60% into the group read <laughs> because that book's a bit too much. Yeah, it's and fucked up, dude. It's the most Mike, fucked up thing I've ever Mike read. And I, Mike and I made it through to the end. Right. And we kind of bonded through that experience. Mm. It is it is a it is a great book, but it, it makes you feel like shit by the time you finish reading it. And it makes you kind of lose faith in humanity by the time you finish reading it. Let me be very clear, just because I don't think the words came out of my mouth clearly. I loved Jack Ketchum's writing style. I think I'm starting to develop something similar to it, where it's just like not big, clunky chunks of paragraphs. I like how smooth and naturally feel. I've never read a book that fast, so I'm trying to... he He reads fast. He's a big inspiration for me as well, because one thing, I've read a lot of Jack Hatcham. I love Jack Hatcham. Actually, when he uh, sadly passed away, I bought the Cemetery Dance edition of Gorilla in my room, because I knew it was one of the last books that he signed. And oh, it was wow. one of the last books that he, it was the last new book he'd release. So I wanted to make sure that like, I had a signed copy of his last new release. That's awesome. And so I made sure I ordered that, but you know, he's, he's a big influence on me, not so much in writing style, but more, he has shown me, you can write about any type of story. Like you can write about any horrible subject as long as you approach it with heart. Yeah. Like if you're honest for the story and you're true to the heart of the story and you write it with that passion, you write it with that heart. It's going to be a good story, despite how emotionally draining it's going to be. Yeah, I mean, he writes at the end, he often notes why he wrote it. He basically wrote it because, of the, um, you know, it was a mixture of his mom passing him, helping sell the house, the anger he has towards uh, the real life crime case uh, that the girl next door is based off of and just threw in his real childhood and neighborhood into it. Have you guys seen the movie? No. No, me either. It's something. It's pretty close to the book. Um, it's it's a, it's I don't, it's I don't know if I want to. I will say it's for it, I will say for like fucked up horror movies, it's not one to really go to recommend because I think as a movie it's just okay. It works better in a book form, and the movie just makes you feel really gross. But if I can recommend one one last movie for you guys, and this is a big influence on my writing, and that is the French movie Martyrs. From 2008. Hmm. Have you guys seen this movie? No, I've heard about it. I have not seen it. Uh, I actually bought it for my sister for Christmas without watching it, but (laughs) I may need to borrow it, uh, depending on where you're going here. (laughs) It is the best movie I'll never watch again. (laughs) What's Uh, it about? So it opens up with a woman and her friend breaking into a house and killing the people inside the house with a shotgun. Hmm. And then it cuts to one of the women was abducted by these people when she was a child, when she was a child and she was tortured and she was going back to get revenge. And then it turns out that this family is part of a cult who 
kidnaps women and children and tries to turn them into martyrs or angels by making them endure lots of pain. And it is incredibly bleak and nihilistic. And it's influenced my fiction and how I approach like storytelling in many ways. A lot of a lot of French cinema has the new extremity movement of French cinema was a big influence on me and how it kind of approaches like storytelling and just really bleak makes you want to take a cold shower and not leave ever again. I don't want to watch that. <laughs> That's so uh, so uh, if, if you, you know, shared a story and had people uh, writing up their thoughts on it, you would be completely happy with, um, I, I, I loved it and please don't ever make me read it again. Would that be a positive comment to you? <laughs> yes, it would actually be a positive <laughs> comment to me. I want my stuff. I don't want myself to like disturb, but I want my stuff to really hit like an emotional level. Like Martyrs doesn't disturb me, but it affects me in a very emotional way. Same with like Midsummer. If you guys saw Midsummer, uh, um, I, wa- I watched uh, I watched it on YouTube where it broke down everything in ten minutes. <laughs> 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 so I know what happens. The whole thing, yeah. Um, I spent I, three hours watching that ten minute video. <laughs> I watched Mar- I watched Midsummer twice in theaters. I saw the original cut and the director's cut when they released the limited screenings of the director's cut. Mm-hmm. And it's partly because I was fresh out of a breakup when I saw Midsummer, <laughs> um, But it also reminded me of like one of my old relationships. And when I was watching the movie, it really affected me in an emotional way where like by the time the movie ended, my head was spinning and I had to like sit in my car for like ten minutes Jeez. just to like let that movie out before I could even drive properly. That sounds rough. And like I liked not even liked, I loved feeling those feelings because it showed me that like I still have feelings. It showed me I'm still human. And it just made me feel like this is real, this is life, this is what people go through. This was a good metaphor for what he's trying to put up there on the screen and it really spoke to me like on an emotional level and i'm hoping my fiction speaks to people on like the same level that like that or martyrs spoke to me when i watched it in cinema Hmm. that's a good way to look at it so if people were like this is a great story but fuck you i'll never read it again (laughs) like that's a compliment to me because that means the story did its justice it did its job yeah so on that lovely note is there anything else that you would like to ask our guests that are running? I'm wondering what you're uh, reading for this last week, Scott. So I'm reading two books for review, and I need to finish them ASAP. Right now, I'm in the middle of a couple different books. So I'm finishing up Doubles Creek, which is amazing. I just finished that uh, a couple days ago, yep. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I'm only like 100 pages in. I was just going to say, you need to read faster so that we could chat about that, but nope. Sorry. I'm also reading The Only Good Indians by uh, Stephen Graham Jones. Mm-hmm. I'm in the middle of that one, too. Yeah. Which is, did you get to the scene? Uh, it's the scene. I'm about 40% in on the Kindle, 43% in, and I think I have gotten to the scene because the tone just changed an awful lot. Oh, boy. You're in for a treat, buddy. Um, <laughs> have I not gotten to the scene, then? <laughs> 
Well, I'll, it, it happens. Did you get to the second section of the book? I, I'm, I'm like paused right between the first and the second. Okay, you got to the scene then. That I got was... to the scene. That's what I, I was worried about what the scene could be if I hadn't gotten to it. <laughs> because that was a one of the most holy shit moments I've ever had in the book. I didn't uh, see it coming. It was very, it was a very kind of <laughs> subdued book up to that point. Yeah, I had the same reaction. But it's an amazing book, and I'm excited to go through it. And I'm also for pleasure, well not for review. I am working through Broken by Don Winslow, who is another influence of mine when it comes to writing. Mm. He's not horror, but if you guys like a good crime story, Don Winslow is a good go-to for crime. Sweet. Broken is a series of novellas that he wrote. A couple of them are original, a couple of them are sequels to some of his novels, and they are bleak, harrowing, tough-edged crime stories. Like, the title story is about a police officer who, his mother is a dispatcher, and his brother is also a police officer. And some shit goes down that ends up his brother being murdered by a drug dealer. And the mother who's a dispatcher goes to the older son, who's always kind of like the tough-built one, and just tells him to kill them all. And he goes on this vengeance spree trying to kill the man who killed his brother. That sounds pretty good. And then I'm also reading The Southern Book Club Guide to Slaying Vampires by Grady Hendrix, mm. which is so good. It's on my to-be-read, and I just don't know when I'm going to get to it, but I keep, I keep hearing that. It's going to keep jumping up based on that stuff. <laughs> so that, that's what I'm reading right now, and I have a few books on queue. I have too many books to read, and not enough time to get them all read. Oh, yeah, you're preaching to the choir, brother. I just got the new Joe Lansdale from S- Subterranean Press. Yeah, that that looks like something that, you know, once you pick it up, you got maybe two days in that before you just speed through it. <laughs> yep, and then I have the new N.K. Jemison I've mean to get back to as well, which is called The City Born Great. That's more like an urban fantasy than it is horror. I'm unfamiliar with that she's, one. She's a, she's a fantasy writer. Okay. She's probably my favorite, like, living modern fantasy writer. Mm. Um, if you are interested in dabbling in fantasy that isn't your traditional fantasy, I'd recommend her trilogy called The Broken Earth. Okay. The first book is the fifth season, and it is about a land or an Earth-type planet that goes through a fifth season, which is an apocalyptic event every so often. And it deals with a mother trying to rescue her daughter after her father has kidnapped her and murdered her son, while the world goes into a fifth season. Sounds like a fucked up family <laughs> situation. It, 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 it deals with a couple plot elements I don't want to spoil, because they're best learning in the book. Mm-hmm. But it deals with people in the world don't trust magic users, so people who use magic have to keep it hidden, mm-hmm. because people view magic as a bad thing. Gotcha. So when the father notices the son using magic because the mother can use magic, the father kills the son. Oh my god. And then takes the daughter away. Wow. I mean, that definitely sounds like it could be horror. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a whole trilogy. It's an awesome trilogy. And each book won the Hugo Award every year. So like, fifth season won the Hugo Award. The sequel won the Hugo Award. The third book won the Hugo Award. So it was a back-to-back-to-back. Hugo yeah. award-winning novel. That's uh, absolutely the, uh, <laughs> the wow! It's slipping my mind. The Lombardi Trophy of the science fiction world. Pretty much. 
So I, it's it, even in a horror, it's something I do recommend to like anyone who's interested in reading because it's just a really fantastically told story. Good to know. It sounds good. But yeah, I can I can talk about books all fucking night. <laughs> uh, and Brennan, what are you reading? Alan Baxter put out a novella that I believe he wrote a few years ago called Golden Fortune Dragon Jade. I just finished that up last night, and it was it was one of those those cool books you read that if it wasn't for the author's name, I, I wouldn't have picked it up. You know, a hundred page kung fu epic with these kind of young adult characters, but it there was definitely some uh, so, some Alan in there between like the fight scenes and. You know, a couple times it kind of borders on the edge of thinking, is this is this going to go into not not Rue, certainly. But uh, I think that's the only <laughs> I think that's the only book that uh, you, you've read by him, but kind of his darker, yeah. more fantasy territories. And, it you know, it always kind of toes that line. But it was definitely something I was glad to spend a little time with. Uh, the other thing I'm reading right now is a book called Quinlan's Secret by an author out of Wisconsin named Kaylin Lloyd, who just kind of sent me her first book just because, and I it was kind of a haunted house meets uh, immortal beings kind of mix-up that really worked for me. I was super excited she sent me her uh, second one that's coming out later this month, and that is May. We are recording this at the beginning of May. <laughs> so yeah, that's out, that's out May 20th, and... I'm like 100 pages in, and it's shaping up to be just as good as the first one, and there'll be a third in that trilogy. How about you, Pat? What are you in the middle of right now? Uh, Three books now. Devil's Creek, and I'm really enjoying it. It's <laughs> uh, it's not bleak yet, but I feel it coming. I'm reading... Oh, man, just you wait. <laughs> I started reading this book that I'm going to go off and on every now and then. Uh, but it's called Brutal by Kevin Weeks, a book about uh, the, the hatchet man, the guy that did all the dirty work for Whitey Bulger. Uh, if you don't know who that is, look Ooh, him I've up. I've that one. Yeah. <laughs> I crime. think I have that one lying around somewhere here. <laughs> and then the third book I'm reading is uh, just to help me become a better writer. It's some book about, I forget the title. But uh, it's under a series called Write Great Fiction. Uh, this one focuses on dialogue. Uh, I never highlight books. I, I am highlighting a lot in this one. It's, it's a lot of good points. That's teaching me some things that are uh, definitely going into my writing. So that, that's about it. Sounds like all good choices. Yeah. So where can people follow you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Rudy53088. Which is a ska reference, because I can't escape those. <laughs> and I also, you can also follow my podcast, Staring Against the Abyss, at the uh, Twitter handle at Into Staring. At Into Staring, I actually didn't know that one. That's a, yeah. Why did you guys, Why did you guys go with Staring Into the Abyss? Why not? <laughs> Putting you on the spot, bro. Hey, no, Scott. honestly, I don't even. I literally like toss in as a name suggestion, and they liked it, and that's how it ended up being staring into the abyss. There's no <laughs> sounds cool. Got it. <laughs> it sounds cool, and we're talking about horror fiction, and my favorite stuff is like cosmic bleakness, like Thomas the Gaudy type stuff. So, Michael Michael Patrick Hicks, by the way, and I know you heard this, sounds exactly like that serial killer in. 
that show on Netflix. Uh, wow, everything's just, slipping. Yeah, no criminal minds. Mindhunter, Mindhunter, Mindhunter. Mind yeah, with Edmund Kemper. He sounds exactly like the actor. Not necessarily the actual serial killer. I don't think he sounds like the real guy, but he definitely sounds like the actor. <laughs> the I love if you look into that. The real guy. If you look into that, that guy, the um the serial killer, not the actor, um has apparently back in the day, uh, it used to be a pretty big business to have one of the jobs that inmates would perform, they would record audiobooks. And if you really go looking, you can find a whole lot by uh, Ed Kemper. Yeah, he, did, uh, he did Flowers in, in the Attic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. saw that one on there. And he That's did a creepy. couple others. Yeah, if you don't know who we're talking about, look up Edmund Kemper. He, um, he had a mother complex, and he never really got a girlfriend. You'll find out why. So on that note, it's been great having you, Scott Kemper, uh, Edmund Kemper's uh, little brother. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure, man. Uh, I, I really enjoyed talking with you, and thank you for coming on. No problem, man. All right, Scott, Brennan, have a great night. Yep, stay safe, guys. All right, see ya. Wear your face mask. We are in your mind. We are all around. You are now leaving. Space. Rich, let's start out with this. Uh, we we like to ask uh, everyone. Uh, what? Oh, God damn it! <laughs> Fuck! I call you Rich all the time. <laughs> Scott Kemper, take two. We are here with our guest. Uh, take three. Damn, take fucking three. <laughs> Hello, everybody. My name is Patrick R. McDonough, your host, joined by me. I can't fucking talk. Brennan, how about you start? <laughs> I can try. I don't know. <laughs> I'll give it a go.